The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan you are about to listen to discusses the following. The Handmaid's Tale, 1984, Brave New World, The Republic, Hexus, Jojo Rabbit, The Mandalorian, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, Lost in Space, The Good Place, Mindhunter, The Deuce, and Eli. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Thanks for listening. Hello. Welcome. So thank you for coming back. Um, this is the start of season five of I Think Therefore I Fan. Who would have thought that possible just two years ago? Time flew. When we were on season zero. Um, <laughs> so good to be back. It's been a little while. The last episode was at the end of October. So lots of things that have happened. Um Rachel's big news, um, I, I think I should probably say something because she might be a little bashful about it, uh, but she won our fantasy football league this year <laughs> without even trying. She, she barely submitted her lineup. Um, it was my lucky year. That's the thing. It's the, the year of Rachel. Yeah, the, the Reagan Fellowship and book deals and um, all kinds of things coming out and happening. and So that was nice. Um, and then Rachel had some minor news this year that, that I'm happy to report. Um, she's been offered and has accepted a tenure-track job at Utah State, so... Um, I'm very happy about that. It's good, a great place to work. Good to be there um, permanently. So that's pretty exciting. Um, the other big thing, um, we've got a book on conspiracy theories, and that's just come out. It's called Conspiracy Theories. Philosophers Connect the Dots, that's on Open Court Publishing, and that's been out for just a little over a week. So um, nice collection of essays on conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And we'll have lots more to say about that later because we're doing a a standalone book, um, not an edited collection on conspiracy theories that'll come out um, next summer or fall, and I'm certain we'll be doing an episode on philosophical themes um, and conspiracy theories. Okay, so... um, The topic of this episode is The Handmaid's Tale. So a couple years, maybe a year and a half back, Rach did an edited collection, um, also for Open Court Publishing, on The Handmaid's Tale called Handmaid's Tale and Philosophy, A Womb of One's Own. And so we talked to um, a couple of the um, chapter authors, Charlene Ellsby and Lee Kolb, and we'll play those interviews for you a little later in the episode. So let's um, turn to The Handmaid's Tale. Margaret Atwood wrote The Handmaid's Tale, and it was published in 1985. And there was a subsequent movie just right after the fact, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in yeah, the, in yeah. the 80s, seemingly, too, I think. 
Uh, and then, but we've seen a reemergence of the popularity of the Handmaid's Tale because Hulu's come out with a series that's now in its just finished its third season, isn't it? Into its fourth? Is yeah, that right? That, that's right. Um, and I'm shocked at the number of people that I've met that have no idea that it used to be a book. Right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> just because I was like, it's a book too. I mean, it was a pretty darn good book. If I don't a mean fabulous saying. book, you really. Uh, it's it's fans of the Handmaid's Tale series really need to read the book. I think they'll really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then Margaret Atwood recently, just last year, came out with a sequel to mm-hmm. the original novel, and it's really um, a, a continuation of the series as well, called The Testaments. Um, we're not going to go into any detail about the Testaments today. So if you're worried that you might get Testament spoilers, and there are some pretty significant Testament spoilers. We're not going to share any of those here. Yeah, I, I should say, um, in what might seem like a shameless plug, if you've read <laughs> my book on spoilers, you mm-hmm. know, um, movies, television shows that have been out a while, they're fair game. But with novels, it's different. Um, I, and, and some things should maybe never be spoiled. But people take a long time to get around to, to novels. So I, I also wonder, too, this didn't really, I don't think this came up in your book, but... Um, it might be that the length of the novel has some uh, some impact on when mm-hmm. it's acceptable to spoil. I mean, the Testament is really large. It's a big book. Yeah, yeah. And so it takes people a while to get around to reading a long book. Right. And um, it's actually, a, I think, a pretty quick read for a very long book because you can't stop. Right. It's a That's, very good oh, book. Oh, I want to say about it. I was completely enthralled. Yeah, sure. But yeah, yeah. So we won't be spoiling that. So I'll say a little bit, I know that some of our listeners listen to episodes um, without having watched the shows involved or read the books or whatever. So before I start talking about the philosophy in The Handmaid's Tale, maybe we'll just give a little bit of an overview of what's going on when the curtain rises, essentially, on The Handmaid's Tale novel. And it rises in the same place, roughly, um, in the in the television series. And this is that... Um, We've seen the government of the United States fall, and it's been and, and so the United States is fractured, um, and much of the East, and maybe kind of veering into the middle of the country, but I think mostly the East yeah, Coast, yeah. is controlled by a totalitarian regime, and that the name of this country now is Gilead, mm-hmm. um, and it's puritanical. It's uh, governed by what some of its citizens seem to think of as Christianity, but it's really not Christianity, and it's very patriarchal. Yeah, and yeah. What, it seems like to be a hybrid of lots of religions and just enough elements of, of each to give the sense of the type of religion it is without any sort of commitment to a particular doctrine. They, they Well, they sure employ a lot of Bible quotes. So yeah. you know the Bible... <laughs> They're at least relying on the authority of the Bible, the authority that maybe some of the citizens were already inclined to accept mm-hmm. in order to justify some of their practices. Right. But, but it doesn't read like um, a Baptist doctrine and it doesn't read like a Catholic doctrine. Right. The name Gilead's from the Book of Mormon, but it's not right out of the Book of Mormon. Um, so what you also find in this community is, and uh, in, in the extent to which is really patriarchal, is that women have been grouped into categories and they're uh, expected to satisfy certain roles depending on the categories they're in. So they're the the aunts and the, they are responsible for uh, governing, right? It, the women's realm, right? They, yeah. they have no control in the men's realm and the men's realm is ultimately 
in charge of everything. But uh, the aunts get to uh, do things like uh, issue punishments when somebody does something wrong or uh, enact policies in order to govern this the, the women's realm. Right. They're, they're really all three branches of government, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're making a lot of the rules for women. They're enforcing the rules. They're administering punishment. Right, so. right. And so then there are the wives. And in most cases, the wives, at least at, at the beginning of Gilead, the wives are sort of the affluent members of society who are married to the men in charge um, and, and that haven't had children outside of wedlock and things like this. Um, and then there are the handmaids mm-hmm. who... Uh, for whatever reason, and, and there are a number of different explanations of this in the different, you know, the book or the series or whatever, but explanations of why the handmaids are handmaids. Um, in many cases, it's because they've uh, engaged in sexual practices that society was inclined to think were, I don't know, immoral, mm-hmm. uh, like like having sex outside of wedlock or children outside of wedlock. Then they become, they're viewed as, uh, acceptable handmaids. They don't need to be treated with the respect of the wives. And, oh, and of course, the one important factor is that there's some evidence that they're capable of um, bringing a child to term. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, what we see is that uh, the environmental conditions have become so hostile, so whether it's due to climate change or pollution or both, that um, the birth rate's really, really low. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are infertile. Right, and the new society is in a sort of very precarious position. Right, and right. and and the infertility is largely being blamed on the women, even though it's just as likely that the men could be infertile. And in fact, that turns out in a number of cases where they do the various tests and send them to the doctors, and it's the men. That, the men that are infertile. But the men right. don't acknowledge it, and they keep trying. Right, and, right. and so that, then there are uh, econo-wives, and it seems that these are people who were maybe married before and living what by Gilead standards would count as a virtuous life, but they're not affluent. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are the Marthas, the Marthas who yeah. are uh, not seemingly not capable of childbirth, mm-hmm. um, but they, uh, so they serve roles like um, maids and nurses and things like that. Cooks and things, domestic. Yeah. And then there are the women who work at Jezebel's who are prostitutes. Mm-hmm. So they're divided into these, uh, these different categories. Um, and these are the conditions, and they're they're kept in these conditions in a variety of ways. Okay, so those are the initial conditions that, that it's important to understand when we're talking about the philosophy of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, in 2013, Margaret Atwood wrote a piece for The Guardian called My Hero George Orwell, in which she described the ways, Orwell, the ways that Orwell's work inspired her, uh, in particular when she began work on The Handmaid's Tale. So she said... The majority of dystopias, Orwell's included, have been written by men and the point of view has been male. When women have appeared in them, they have been either sexless automatons or rebels who've defied the sex rules of the regime. I wanted to try a dystopia from the female point of view, the world according to Julia, as it were. So I I find this notion, this interview really, or this article that she wrote really interesting because uh, it's, it's kind of fun to think about what might make a dystopia a dystopia from a woman's point of view. Mm-hmm. In my paper in The Handmaid's Tale and Philosophy, uh, I explore uh, the similarities and differences between George Orwell's 1984 and Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. 
And so I'll just highlight some of those similarities um, and then also highlight what I think the differences are and why Atwood's work, um, why The Handmaid's Tale in particular counts as a dystopia from, from a woman's point of view. I mean, it's not enough that they're just female characters. Mm -hmm. A female could be the main character and it still could be a, a, a dystopia that focuses on male values or something like that. Uh, but but uh, Atwood has really described what I think would count as a dystopia from a woman's point of view specifically. Right. Uh, dystopias that are sort of by men directed towards men usually involve things like loss of social status, loss mm -hmm. of money, someone's taking mm -hmm. all the wealth, loss of power. None of that seems to be sort of unique to what a woman might experience right. in a way that, that we find right. here. Right. Um, and of course, not all women are going to have this particular set of values, and this isn't going to possibly ring true for every woman, but mm -hmm. uh, you can see what Atwood has in mind. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Okay, so uh, the, first, the first thing that I think is a similarity between Atwood's work and Orwell's has to do with um, keeping citizens ignorant. Right. So um, in 1984, uh, you see um, the INGSOC, the, the main party, um, seriously limiting the kinds of things that the citizens can have access to. So the history books are, um, <laughs> well, if you really want to call them history books, yeah. they're they're written by the party, right? They're written by members of the party who will revise them at will, even to say something perhaps that's exactly the opposite of what uh, of of what they said before, right? And and um, citizens are exposed only to a very small amount of information, and this keeps citizens from challenging what the party's saying because they don't have enough information. So critical thinking, I think, is crucial to a thriving democracy. And so one key element in a totalitarian regime is, is diminishing the extent to which citizens can exercise critical thinking skills. Um, and this is definitely true in The Handmaid's Tale. Um, so uh, in The Handmaid's Tale, you see right out of the gate, one of the first scenes, both in the book and the, in the um, television series, uh, Offred, or June, as we later learn that's her name. Mm -hmm. um, you can kind of deduce that from the book. There's uh -huh. a one cryptic passage where they list the people who were there. June is named. At the named, Red Center, yeah. yeah. And you know all the other characters later. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. you, you she, could read that a million times and not know she's June. Right. And, but then it comes out in the, the series. series. Um, she's walking with her walking companion off Glen and they go to the market and there are no signs with any words on them, right? Mm -hmm. So there are pictures and that's how they know what store has what products. But the, we learned that the handmaids are not allowed to read. Um, and so uh, this is one of these elements that diminishes their critical thinking skills and prevents them from rising up against, uh, the, 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 against power, uh, one fun storyline in 1984 involves the ability the, or the attempt that the party makes to restrict language. So um, Newspeak is the language of Oceania, which is the, where they live. Um, and it's, it's routinely revised by Ingsoc, the party. Um, and there's this architect of the language, Syme, who describes Newspeak in the following way. 
By 2050, earlier probably, all real knowledge of old speak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in new speak versions, not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory to what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. How could you have have a slogan like freedom is slavery when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means no, not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. So 1984 plays with this idea of the relation between language and critical thinking skills, because in order to maybe express your dissent, mm -hmm. you need to be, you need to have strong language skills. And so the party tries to diminish those. And you see Gilead doing the same thing. We'll get rid of language. We won't let you read. Then you'll believe what you tell, we tell you to believe. Right. Their shopping lists are little cards with pictures of fish and loaves of uh -huh. bread and all that. Right. And, um, you know, they are sometimes read too, but what in Gilead, what they're read, um, is so usually the things that they're read are, are supposed to be passages from the Bible, but you'll find they're not actually they're, passages from the Bible. They're fake, yeah. So uh, here's, here's one good example. Um, in one of Offred's reflections in the book, she's thinking to herself, not every commander has a handmaid. Some of their wives have children. And then here's the, the passage. From each, says the slogan, according to her ability, to each, according to his needs. <laughs> so. We recited that three times after dessert. It was from the Bible, they said. Or St. Paul again in Acts. So, of course, obviously, that's it's, not a biblical passage. It's Mark's. And Mark's wasn't talking about the bodies of women, right? It wasn't <laughs> talking about the you know, reproductive abilities of women uh, being basically uh, doled out according to people's needs for children and their needs for sex, right? Mm -hmm. So Yeah, and particularly ironic that they're using Marx with his famous, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. I mean, uh -huh. the, the person right. with the greatest amount of contempt for religion gets this highly prominent role once they twist all his words around mm -hmm. in their religious practices. There's been a lot of discussion about whether the, in The Handmaid's Tale, um, Margaret Atwood is being overtly critical of religion. Um, and I, I think she's gone on record and says, said that that's not the case. Um, although it can be kind of hard not to see it that way. Um, I think that maybe to be charitable, what a, um, the kind of critique she's offering of religion is this kind of un, unreflective religious faith where mm -hmm. you're, you know, so here we get this passage that's actually like um, some bastardization of Marx. Um, and if the uh, the citizens of Gilead and the women in particular had the opportunity to actually read the Bible, uh, they wouldn't um, they would realize that that's not in it, right? right and right. so, I mean, it kind of reminds me of maybe thinking about the Protestant Revolution, um, the Reformation, thinking about um, how there was a time in which you know people if they heard biblical passages, it would frequently be at church and it would be read in Latin. And so it was not, they were not in a position to be critically reflective of what they were, right. were learning. Um, and so in that movement led to people having a greater personal relationship with God and uh, kind of taking from religion what they wanted to take. Uh, and it could be a more intimate spiritual experience. And I think the, the conditions set up in Gilead are such that 
they can't have an intimate relationship with God because they're being, rather than being reflective about that, what they want to believe in God, mm -hmm. they're being told what they have yeah, to accept. Force-fed a bunch of nonsense yeah. that has nothing to do yeah. with it. Yeah. yeah, I just want to say back to the, you know, um, earlier days of the church. It's a shame all those people didn't bother to learn Latin. The church is going to all the trouble to have mass in Latin. <laughs> They're speaking it, you know, I mean, nowadays, if you want to learn, you know, you download an app and it's just immersive, right? You just hear the language over and over. Yeah, if I, only it's, those peasants had just downloaded the app. I can't believe some peasants sat there in church every single week for maybe, I don't know, they all died at 30, 30, 32 years. <laughs> And didn't even bother to learn Latin. People disgust me. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, so I think um, this, this restriction of critical thinking skills, the limits on language, um, so they're present in both 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale, but I think they have special implications um, in The Handmaid's Tale. And that's those are these implications that um, maybe will... Um, they're restrictive of autonomy for women. I mean, they're restrictive of the autonomy of all the members, except for the, maybe the ruling class in Gilead, because, of course, there are constraints put on um, men that aren't in power positions, right? So um, people like Nick mm -hmm. and, and figures like that. Um, husbands of Akana wives, um, those, those types of people, or uh, guardians, or, or that, that type of thing. Um, people who have more working-class jobs, um, but it manifests itself with regard to women in particular, because uh, if you can't engage in critical thinking skills uh, because the information you're being given is limited, then you're not going to be as likely to think about the range of options that's available to you. Um, you know, you might think these, these conditions are inherently coercive. They're putting these women into these categories and then not they're, they're limiting the tools they have to think about how they might transcend those categories. Mm -hmm. Right. And so and it makes it easier for women to stereotype themselves because they're being encouraged to do so, to think about themselves as uh, their value is reducible to their biological characteristics. Right. Right. Love and sex also play an important role in both 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale. And in fact, they play a pretty sig significant role in um, Brave New World as well. So one thing about dystopias, and I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but um, I think dystopias highlight fundamental human values. So, uh, like, so we value knowledge, and so we value the the pathways to knowledge, like good critical thinking skills and the ability to critically analyze language. So that um, relates to the point we were just making. Um, but then, of course, human beings value love, and they value sexual relationships. Um, and it seems like in all three of these novels. Uh, the totalitarian government in play thinks of these as maybe the, the most love and sex as the most significant challenges, the most significant risks posed to their form of government. Um, I'm wondering if in post-production I shouldn't cue up some very white music for this segment. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm, so in Brave New World, for example, we've got artificial wombs. Children are raised in artificial wombs. Fetuses are, are brought to term in artificial wombs. Um, and hey, this is emerging technology now. This is this is not 
such a brave new world, right? Uh, spoiler alert, all the big dystopian novels from the last half of the previous century are all coming true. They're prophetic. <laughs> Every single bit of it. And so we should maybe pause to think about, I mean, I think there's something very, you might think that there's something very liberating about artificial wombs because uh, couples can raise children without um, being worried about, without the woman being worried about the strain that that's going to put on her body, mm-hmm. right? Because Pregnancy does cause strain on a woman's body. Right. Being out um, in the world is bound to be riskier than some controlled environment. Um, right, right. During yeah. pregnancy um, and whatnot. You can maybe directly intervene in cases where you wouldn't have that kind of immediate intervention possible uh, were the child to be raised um, in a human womb. Uh, so that's happening in, in Brave New World. In 1984... Um, Sex is reserved exclusively for the purpose of reproduction. So young women in particular are taught from a very early age that sex for reproduction should properly be viewed as joyless and unfortunate, but is a duty that they owe to the party. So there's a quote from, the, from 1984. Is, there were even organizations such as the Junior Anti-Sex League, which advocated complete celibacy for both sexes. Wow. So in 1984, ideally all children would be created by artificial insemination and then raised by the state. This isn't the way it's always going to happen. That's not always going to be successful. And they realize that people are going to be having uh, children the traditional way. Um, but then they, they closely guard who gets married and who's allowed to have sex with one another. Um, and there, uh, Orwell's very explicit about the, way, the role that sex plays in the society. He says, quote, it was not merely that the sex instinct created a world of its own that was outside the party's control and which therefore had to be destroyed if possible. What was more important was the sexual privation induced hysteria, which was desirable because it, be, it could be transformed into war fever and leader worship. So, um, wow. so the, you know, the, the controlling of the sexual impulses of the citizens and the controlling of their love lives and whatever, um, not only... Create, um, created a barrier to some forms of uh, pushback against the party, uh, but it also um, elicited emotions that allowed the party to control its citizens. And so one of the most revolutionary acts that you could engage in as a party member would be to have a sexual relationship or a relationship of love with someone and the party is not involved, mm-hmm. right? And that's, you, you definitely see that in The Handmaid's Tale. I'll say more about that, but I, I want to share one more passage from 1984. Um, O'Brien has Winston um, locked in a room and he's being tortured and he, they're really putting... Uh, they're, they're really putting the pressure on him to conform to the ideals of the party. And O'Brien says, We have beaten you, Winston. We have broken you up. You have seen what your body is like. Your mind is in the same state. I do not think there can be much pride left in you. You've been kicked and flogged and insulted. You have screamed with pain. You have rolled on the floor in your own blood and vomit. You have whimpered for mercy. You have betrayed everyone and everything. Can you think of a single degradation that has not happened to you? Winston had stopped weeping, though the tears were still oozing out of his eyes. He looked up at O'Brien. I have not betrayed Julia, he said. O'Brien looked down at him thoughtfully. No, he said. No, that is perfectly true. You have not betrayed Julia. And what's interesting in this section of 1984 is that he said all sorts of stuff about Julia and her involvement. And, but what he means by I haven't betrayed Julia is I haven't stopped loving Julia. Mm-hmm. And that's one way in which the party can never have com- rest complete control over him. 
And I think this is a significant theme explored in The Handmaid's Tale, uh, but it's explored in, um, in a couple of different ways. So uh, I think it's definitely explored in, um, well, it's explored in June's relationship with the commander even, mm-hmm. um, because her sexual relationship with the commander outside of the ceremony, even when it's not explicitly sexual, even when it doesn't involve a sexual act, um, involves, she's playing a power game with the commander, yeah. right? So in their little private sessions when they're playing Scrabble and he's letting her read magazines. Mm-hmm. And she's letting him win. And... She's still exerting some kind of sexual dominance in a scenario where she's supposed to be completely submissive, mm-hmm. right? She's, uh, and then, uh, so it's happening with the commander and you see that for sure in the series because more things happen with the commander in the television series than happen in the book. Right, right. Um, but then in particular, you see this with Nick. I mean, I actually, I think this is one of the main points of the book. Um, and, and because it, the book really culminates in her relationship with Nick, with her sexual relationship with Nick, and seemingly they love each other. I think the book leaves that a little bit more ambiguous than the um, television series does. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is this revolutionary act. So even if Alfred is still living in the uh, under the, um, the roof of the commander and has to undergo the ceremony and all this other stuff... She's re- she's rebelled against it by loving Nick and engaging in a sexual relationship with Nick that isn't prescribed uh, by the rules of Gilead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one final way this is explored in all sorts of it's in in all, the book, the television series, the um, the the testaments, uh, and I won't again I won't say anything specific about the testaments, but um, love of child. Right. The love of child is not really explored in 1984 or Brave New World, um, it, but it is explored. In, and I'm not saying that children aren't important to males, but it is it is explored in a book that is supposed to be explicitly about dystopia from a woman's point of view mm-hmm. um, is what uh, the, the rebellious act of refusing to give up the love you have for your child, no matter how much Gilead is trying to change your identity, is trying to wrest that child from your control mm-hmm. and give it to somebody else. Right, right, right. And, and make it seem as though you play an important role in turning over that child and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's one of the things where I think that the TV series does an even better job than the book, mm-hmm. just because they can go into more detail about it. Um, you really see Alfred or June's struggling with that, um, mm-hmm. especially with the first child, mm-hmm. um, continuously throughout the series. Right. Refusing to leave Gilead, mm-hmm. right? Um, wanting to do everything to ensure the safety of both of her children. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, this is also explored in uh, a lot of depth in the series by, uh, in the character of Off Warren. You know, who um, has the child uh, with the commander and then is assigned to a new post, but uh, still views the child as hers, which rightly so. I mean, one thing that I've I've thought about the whole series, though, is that um, I'm not sure if I'm crazy about the implications for adoptive parents, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That There's a lot of emphasis put on the relationship between biological mother and biological child. And you can capture all that by saying the relationship between... Parent, parent and child, child. regardless right. of the biology. But, Although the other side of it is that, uh, you know, the extent to which the um, um, 
women of Gilead, the Serena Joys, etc. The wives. The wives can embrace the relationships. It sort of captures something. Right. But it's very strongly portrayed as if they're taking ownership of something that's not theirs. Right, right. right. Uh, and th- there's some passages in the Testaments where I was like... And there's mm-hmm. a lot of social status tied yeah. into it. Yeah. Well. They're... they're uh, business, this business about someone smelling or not smelling authentically like a mother, like a mm-hmm. kid's mother. It's like, well, wait a second, uh-huh. you know, but, but, um, yeah, all, uh, those are important points. It's not like biology doesn't have some, you know, we shouldn't rest children away from their biological mother, say at the border of the country or something. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. So, uh, one final set of issues that I wanted to bring up before we turn to the interviews yeah. uh, has to do with um, the history of philosophy. There's lots of um, instances from the history of philosophy of putting people into groups based on what you might think are their natural skills. So what are some examples of that? Right. So um, maybe most famously in Plato's Republic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the well-functioning city, well, actually all all cities would have these parts and then well-functioning them has everyone doing their job. But you've got the rulers and then the guardians, you know, the auxiliaries, and the workers, right? Mm-hmm. And everything's relegated to a role. And that's when things are, are going well, when everyone does what they're supposed to do. But the auxiliaries, the military, doesn't try to rule. They don't wrestle power mm-hmm. from the, the, the natural leaders, who um, I don't agree with Plato on very much, but I'm always happy to say... Philosopher, Philosopher kings, kings, baby. Get it right, yeah. And when the workers don't worry about defending the city, they work. They're focused narrowly, single-mindedly on producing, right? And then you've got Aristotle with the his organ argument. Everything, you know, is at its best when it's Satisfying performing its function, its function whatever yeah. that may be. And yeah. so that gives rise to natural law theory because Aristotelianism had a strong influence on the development of the Judeo-Christian tradition, mm-hmm. right? So... Um, you get this idea that everything has a function. Everything has a mm-hmm. function, right? Just like yeah. Aristotle thought. And that, and then they add this normative element, which is that a thing should always be satisfying its function. And uh, it's in that way, these kind of puritan... If you embrace natural law theory, some of these puritanical societies, totalitarian regimes can get off the ground. Societies like Gilead. Mm-hmm. Because if, if you get people convinced that their function is to do what their bi- biology dictates. Okay, you can have babies, now you're an incubator. Yeah. Right? Which, which is really interesting. Um, so if you look at women and you say, well, what can you do? You can make babies, you're an incubator. Mm-hmm. Um, but here they also say, and that's all you can do, right? Mm-hmm. So the men, um, I don't want to go into too much detail, when a man and a woman really love each other, yada, yada, yada. I mean, you could tell the same story where somebody looked at the men and said, oh, you mm-hmm. produce the seed, Right. The, the fertilizers. Okay, that's all you do. But they don't do that. They, they do that, but they're also the commanders and they're right. it's, the it's workforce. It's patriarchal they're the, they're the culture. Eyes. So yeah. they're, they're going to reduce the women to their biological traits, but, but not, not the reduce men. the men to their biological traits. Right. Um, yeah. So um, the, one of the big problems, this highlights, I think, one of the big problems with natural law theory. One is... Um, you can't get an ought from an is, right? It's the naturalistic mm-hmm. fallacy. Just because something is the case doesn't mean it ought to be the case. And this idea that everybody should be satisfying their biological function 
prevents any sort of transcendence, right? It, it prevents people from thinking, from big thought, creative thought, thinking autonomously um, about how they could live a meaningful life for them. I mean, you see this explored, I mean, this is, I think, the major theme in, in The Handmaid's Tale. There are all sorts of women that have interests. They have things that they want to be doing. So um, off Glenn was a college professor prior to, prior to uh, she, she had a whole career, a whole research program. And then they say, nope, you're reduced to your biological function, which is having kids. And she wasn't even heterosexual. Yeah, right. right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, it prevents this transcendence and seriously restricts autonomy. We've got some interviews that kind of pick up on some of these themes. Yeah, um, yeah. So Lee Kolb is going to talk about um, some of these. Uh, well, she'll talk about Hannah Arendt mm -hmm. um, and some of the stratification, some of the social stratification and uh, and Arendt versus Atwood's per pictures of what we are and aren't getting right. Um, and then Charlene Elsby will pick up on a, a really interesting question about the relationship between women and Gilead. So... Mm -hmm. Um, in particular, Serena Joy, who's a really interesting character. How yeah, do yeah. women... How and do even more so, not to interrupt, but even more yeah. so in the, the series, right? The mm -hmm. things they do with her right. are just fantastic. Absolutely. How do we understand women's... Uh, how do we understand a woman who helps to construct her, the, 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 the basic norms for her own oppression? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then how do we understand um, free will and moral responsibility in that system? And how do we understand women's relationship to each other? Yeah, great. So um, on to Charlene first. Sure. Great. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Richard and Rachel. How are you? Good, good. Oh, wow. Thanks for, for talking to us today. So the topic of Absolutely. the the uh, the topic of the paper that you wrote for the Handmaid's Tale and Philosophy book is Serena Joy, which is a great topic because she's one of the most complicated characters in the Handmaid's Tale. Uh, so I want to ask you a few questions about that. Absolutely. First of all, I'm, I, this might come as sort of out of left field, but I'm wondering what you thought of the casting choice. Um, I know it struck me that the casting choice for the series, um, you know, the, the series cast an, an actress that was a lot younger than the way I pictured Serena Joy. Uh, how did you feel about it? Did you, did you feel like that's a good casting choice? It, it gave him more freedom to do different things or... Yeah, to be honest, I hadn't thought of it till now. I thought they made a great casting choice. Um, the woman who plays Serena Joy, she, uh, well, because she's younger and she is such an attractive woman, we feel compelled to, to sympathize with her. Uh, but we really shouldn't, as I talk about in the paper. Uh, so I think they yeah. made a really a complicated choice. Yeah. Um, making the character sympathetic through casting. Right, but and we on the whole despicable. Right, we get a we there's there's a wider range of options. I mean, I think the suggestion in the novel is that maybe one of the reasons she might not be in a position to bear children is because she's too old to bear yeah, children. Yeah. But then you get this more complicated story in the series. Okay, so um, your paper in many ways has to do with um, free will and moral responsibility and the extent to which um, a member of an oppressed class can be understood as free and responsible for their actions. And you give like sort of two different models of what that might look like, an Aristotelian one and an existential one. What's the difference between those two models? Can you explain that for our listeners? Yeah. Uh, so my basic idea is that uh, when we're taking into account someone's situation, uh, when we're trying to evaluate their ethical decision, we need to be careful not to take away their autonomy. Mm -hmm. So 
Because Serena Joy is a member of an oppressed class in Gilead, mm-hmm. uh, we tend to sympathize with her because, like, she too is oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we do so, we take away a bit of her moral autonomy. So under the Aristotelian account, when you take away someone's moral autonomy, it's like taking away their ability to make moral decisions, which basically classifies them as a non-moral being. And Mm -hmm. the risk is that we take away their humanity by doing so. Right. So while we sympathize with Serena Joy, if we're not to hold her responsible, we are thinking of her as less than human, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a problem. Whereas on the existential account, we think of people as radically free. So despite the fact that Serena Joy is oppressed, she still has the freedom to do a number of things that could help someone, uh, just taking into account the consequences, of course. But just the fact that there are consequences for her actions doesn't mean that she still doesn't have the choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, She might still just choose one day to assassinate the commander and run away with June. Right. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, um, given that sort of mechanism that you have in place to discuss uh, responsibility, um, what's the difference? So we, uh, in the novel and throughout the first season of the show, we see the ritual, right? The ceremony, I guess it's called. And that's rape, Mm -hmm. right? But then in the second season, you've got this other rape Mm -hmm. uh, that stands out. What do you have to say about that? It seems like one, perhaps, Serena Joy is more responsible for than the other. Or how do you, what do you think about that? Oh, remind me for a second, uh, which scene you're talking about. So there's a, yeah, I think it's in season two. And and I think you mentioned it in the paper, but you might be talking about the ceremony in general. So there's the scene, there's the scene, I think it's toward the end of season two, maybe beginning of season three, where the commander's just angry at June. Yeah, yeah. Right, and and they go into the room, and and it's it's an aggressive rather than being kind of um, just a, a typical ceremony. It's not done at ceremony time or whatever. Wow. It's almost like yeah. a, a, a she's being punished, right? And Serena's complicit in it. Got so it. okay, so uh, what I see the difference to be between those two circumstances is that in the one instance, in the ceremony, it's a formalized procedure. Yeah still personal but it's personal on the level of a general like it's uh it's something that is happening to june because she's a woman capable of bearing children and that's sinful right um but the second kind of rape is is personal it's a personal punishment it's not just because she's one of a kind of a class or a member of a gender it's it's meant for her it's right right uh, yeah the difference is um who is being punished here? Is it the person or is it the class? Yeah. Mm, yeah. So what do you have to say about Serena Joy's role in constructing the whole thing? I mean, she played a pretty sub- significant role um, yeah. in crafting the society. Yeah. And the, the interesting part I find about that is that the whole time she's acting against her own best interest. Right. So I think it's interesting the extent to which we can convince ourselves to act in such a manner. And mm-hmm. I think she can only do so through a, a kind of self-delusion uh, that I talk about in my chapter. It serves as bad faith. Right. Mm-hmm. So the bad faith, uh, just the concept um, that you have to convince yourself of something that isn't true in order to behave the way you do. And I compare it to, for instance, when we try to convince ourselves that you know some people aren't worthy of rights. 
or when mm-hmm. uh, Gilead decides that some women aren't women, right? The right. unwomen, uh, mm-hmm. when that itself is just like an outright contradiction. So how do people convince themselves it's true? It's through some form of bad faith. And I think Serena Joy is acting with a high level of bad faith, which you can understand as just insincerity or inauthenticity or this yeah. kind of psychological mechanism that we use to trick ourselves into believing something that is maybe more pragmatic, uh, but is definitely not in our own best interest. So Serena Joy is a really interesting character, I think, because she serves as a plot device for exploring the question of um, how women can contribute to their own oppression and to the oppression of other women. Mm-hmm. Is The Handmaid's Tale useful in, in getting us to explore how that might still be happening today? And if so, what ways do you think that's still happening today? Oh, it's definitely happening today. It happens all the time. And I thought a lot about this writing the chapter, and Mm -hmm. I think it just comes down to uh, that humans have some basic natural tendency to try to ally themselves with the winning team. Mm -hmm. So if I see that some particular group has some benefit that I don't, I will try to find some way to ally myself with them. And in the case of The Handmaid's Tale, that happens to be the patriarchy. So it right. ends up in this weird contradiction where women are trying to uh, conform their views to the views of the men around them, despite the fact that those views are explicitly oppressing them. Mm-hmm. And right. yeah, I think that happens all the time. I think people do it today, and I think women oppress women. Yeah. Okay, well, do you have any other questions, Richard? Um, well, I'm just very curious to hear a little bit more about Hexus. Oh, yes. Tell us oh. about tell us about your book, Charlene. One, Ooh, one of your books. books. One of your books. <laughs> one of your many at this point. Books. Say that one more time. I think we were talking over top of you. Yes. Uh, my book coming out February 4th from Clash Books, clashbooks.com, is a horror novel. It's a complex psychological stream of consciousness story uh, told from the perspective of a woman who kills her uh, a man ten times. So it's the same woman and the same man. She kills him ten times. Oh, fun. And it's coming out next month. Oh, sounds great. I'm wondering, this might just... uh, I I don't mean to surprise you with this question, um, but but I'm wondering... um, can you describe your experiences writing both uh, engaging in both philosophical writing and fiction? Uh, how did that happen? And uh, did your philosophical training help out with your fiction writing? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, I believe strongly that philosophy has provided uh, the content for my fiction writing. So Mm -hmm. the reason we study philosophy is to gain a greater in-depth knowledge of life, the universe, and everything. And these are the things that writers write about. And that's absolutely what helped me form the concepts to be expressed in Hexus. And sometimes I just go full-on philosophy. Mm -hmm. I go through logical arguments and (laughs) express some kind of introduction to conditionals and other logical concepts. Uh, But I think overall I just came to writing the fiction because uh, when my department closed, I joined the Department of English and Linguistics, and Mm -hmm. that rekindled my interest in writing fiction again, which I had done before I started doing philosophy, Mm -hmm. uh, but I hadn't done for quite a long time. Wow, that's great. That's great. Wonderful. Uh, Thanks for for chatting with us, and um, we will um, 
look forward to chatting with you again in the future. And reading Hexes. Yeah. And, and reading Hexes. <laughs> Clashbooks.com. So, yeah, looks, we're, we're both big horror buffs, so I, it's very exciting yeah. for, for <laughs> this to, to be on our near horizon. Okay, great. All right, take care. Okay, that was great. Um, let's turn to our interview with Lee Kolb. Hi, Hi. Lee. Hello. Thanks for um, for chatting with us today. Yeah, I really oh, enjoyed pleasure. your uh, chapter in the Handmaid's Tale philosophy book called Gestational Totalitarianism. Nice. Uh, in this paper, you it's it's a great paper. You do a lot here. Um, you talk about Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition, among other works. Um, and you talk about things like division of labor, including how that applies to women and childbirth and so on. Um, and you say that you think both Arendt and Atwood are both making a comment on society that uh, what we're doing isn't working. Could you say a little bit about both thinkers and how you think they're, that they're making those points, the, the point that what we're doing isn't working? Right. I think that... Um, with Arendt, it's very tempting, and so much of what you read is um, looking at some of the claims she was making as being kind of inherently anti-feminist, because mm-hmm. was borrowing from some of those, um, you know, ideas of the separate spheres, which I think that we have to really turn a critical eye on that. Could I pause for a second, and could you, yeah. uh, the, the, the listeners may be unfamiliar with the, the different spheres. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, generally speaking, kind of layman's terms, it's the public sphere or the private sphere. And that became very popular in the Victorian era when there was this kind of cult of domesticity. Industrialism was really kind of changing everything and this idea of women's place being in the home. Mm -hmm. And it harkens back, though, to Aristotle. So that's oikos is the private sphere and polis is the public political sphere. Mm -hmm. So there's been ideas um, since, you know, ancient thinkers that the public sphere, what happens outside governments, um, and the home, private life, it's different. They operate differently. Um, But historically, there was an idea that there kind of needed to be a balance. But then that was turned into something that was really, and continues to be really oppressive of Mm -hmm. women in society, typically. So when Arendt makes mention of those things, either explicitly or just, you can kind of tell that she's searching for more of a balance because she says that um, post-industrialism, et cetera, the social is kind of like this third sphere that has um, presented itself. And we are doing a very poor job in terms of not balancing the private and public and kind of mushing it all together and it's just not working um and i think that atwood also in her dystopian novel that you know she consistently says that you know everything in this novel has happened or is happening right yeah she isn't just criticizing um patriarchy she's also she weaves in some criticism of kind of radical or liberal feminism mm-hmm of trying to fit itself into this public sphere instead of elevating the private sphere and seeking a, a balance and value of both. Yeah, that seems right to me. You get the juxtaposition between like the puritanical values of Gilead and maybe the, the ideology that somebody like Serena Joy is putting forth. And then you've got 
um, June's mother on the other side, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who, who also isn't portrayed as without fault. Um, mm-hmm. d- d- from your perspective, do, do you think that that's, that that distinction between those two characters is something that Atwood is using to explicitly make that point, or I guess implicitly <laughs> yeah. make that point? I definitely think so, and I think that she did it in the novel quite clearly, mm-hmm. but of course yeah. the TV show has been able to flesh out um, that because we spend much more time with June's mother and kind mm-hmm. of see that dichotomy of her activism that June kind of rejects from an early age. And we're also able to criticize it because, again, instead of this idea of, you know, we need to kind of undo and create anew, just trying to deal with um, themes of women's oppression within a patriarchal capitalistic society, and it's not working. So in the paper, you also talk about uh, totalitarianism. Uh, mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that. So, um, and I marked a passage. You say, modernity is fertile grounds for isolation in the political realm and loneliness in the pri- in and loneliness in private life. Um, and you say, Arendt shows that this combination dangerously keeps the door ajar for to- for totalitarian rule to take over. Uh, can you tell us what you have in mind when you say that? I think that this, the idea of modernity, kind of how, how we are now and how we live now, and this idea that it isn't working, um, there's such a sense of desperation, whether it's outside the home or inside the home, of kind of loneliness and desperation. And when Atwood wrote The Handmaid's Tale in the 80s, you know, how prophetic were some of these ideas? Right. Because now we're dealing with um, not even the sociopolitical realm, but even in our personal lives, in terms of social media, and Mm -hmm. how the more connected we are, the more isolated we are. So I think that when people are desperate, whether it's outside or inside of the home, it um, makes it much easier to accept or go along with um, really hideous things in the outside world. Do you think that Atwood saw this coming, or do you think she just worried that this was coming? I mean, it is terribly prophetic or prescient. Yeah. Well, right, and I think that the things that perhaps weren't coming were already happening or had happened. Mm -hmm. And she and Arendt both, I think, this idea that this prevailing message of this can happen, it can happen again, don't Mm -hmm. think that it can't. Um, I think that that that's just a really powerful message throughout. Absolutely. Indeed. Okay. I think that's a historian and a prophet, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us, Lee. I think that's all the questions we have for you. Nice having you on the show again. Um, We always appreciate your contributions. Yeah. It's an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay, Rach, what are we liking this week? Well, it's been quite a while, so there's a lot of things on our list. Yeah, liking liking lots of stuff. So it's been a couple months. Um, so we've got this this long list of things and an even longer list of things that we're not liking. Sometimes we do that, but I think we'll we'll skip those and maybe just hit some of the high points. Okay, so in the in the time that we've been gone, 
Um, maybe the thing I've liked the most pretty close is Jojo Rabbit. Oh, that was great. Um, boy, mm-hmm. that's a wonderful um, thing. We're going to talk about it. A wonderful film. Um, in an upcoming episode, because um, we're going to talk a lot about the movies from this year. But boy, the way that treats prejudice and preconceptions. And, mm-hmm. and compassion, I think, for like why someone might hold a view that we find abhorrent. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the backstory about how somebody could be a member of the Hitler Youth is, is just incredible. And, and you can like this character the whole time because of mm-hmm. the way the story is told. Um, okay, so... Philosophically, I'm not sure where this is at. Um, let's let's give it a moment's thought. But man, I loved the Mandalorian. I yeah, oh, the Mandalorian's got lots of great philosophy. Can't in it. wait for the, it's it's such a western that in a, in a lot of ways it's sort of purposely not philosophical, except for the maybe the existential. Oh, I think there's plenty of good stuff there. Uh, um, my friend Anthony Holdier, who is a fa- uh, friend of the podcast, um, wrote a story for the Prindle Post on. I think the title was something like, is it okay to eat baby Yoda? Uh But, you know, the way they're treating, like, food politics in The Mandalorian is really interesting. Right, right, Um, right. Some of the ideology of The Mandalorian, um, I guess it's an ideology, is interesting and that kind of thing. So Yeah, what what do you think baby Yoda tastes like? I'm going with pistachio, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I might be projecting. Okay, so just this last week we saw 1917, um... Maybe the most existential war movie I've ever seen. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. And because that's so recently out, I don't want to spoil any of it. Um, other than to say, there are just times where it looks absolutely Oh, the cinematography. And, yeah. I, that might be the prime candidate for cinematography. I, don't, I haven't looked at the full list of Oscar nominations. I don't know if it's nominated for cinematography, but it should be if it isn't. Okay. Um, saw the rise of Skywalker, kind of a mixed bag. Um, I'd seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, but you've just recently seen it. Yeah, that um, was a lot of fun. Lots of great stuff there. We're enjoying the the, the second season of Lost in Space. Um, we'll have more to say when that's over. The the final three or four or five episodes, depending on how you carve it up, of The Good Place is um, is now currently airing. You've been enjoying Mindhunter season two yeah. quite a bit. Um the, the Deuce wrapped up nicely. I saw a little horror film called Eli. Um, again, we'll talk about lots more of these in upcoming um, episodes. But what are we liking? Lots of stuff. Okay, Rach, that's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage, that's I think ifan.com, all one word, to find out about upcoming episodes. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.